Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 42 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul Addresses the Murderous Mob in Jerusalem, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 21, verse 37 through chapter 22, verse 30. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Okay, so this is the second of three accounts of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And it's really quite remarkable that the Holy Spirit and his wisdom chose in this one incredible book of Acts to give us three accounts of the same event. Uh, That must tell us how significant it is, and we're going to get to walk through it uh, here for the first time uh, through the lips of Paul himself as he talks about how he himself was converted and then the the impact of that on the crowd. So it's just a very thrilling chapter to walk through today. Let me go ahead and read the passage as we begin our time together. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Andy, what do we learn at the end of chapter 21 from the Tribune's question to Paul and Paul's answer? And what does Paul do to get the crowd's attention? Well, first of all, we are we live in an information-saturated age. And we have these smartphones and, and digital um, information coming instantly. Something happens around the world, we're aware of it. We also know the faces of very famous people. We can have the face of the president of Russia or the prime minister of, of uh, England or the president of the United States. And people all, of, all over the world can recognize that face. But back then, people didn't know the, these things. They, they're rumors. They're like, who is this man? They're not aware. Um, they've heard of somebody, but they don't know that that particular man standing right there is that person. That's why Judas played the role of betrayer. He said, the man I kiss is the one you're looking for. Arrest him. Because not everyone knew what Jesus looked like. And so um, there was some pretty significant misinformation uh, when this tribune, this uh, Roman um, governor or, or commander, um, said, uh, do you speak Greek? And he said, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the desert some time ago? It couldn't have been more wrong. Hmm. And he's surprised that he spoke Greek. He said, I thought it took you for just a Jew, but now that you speak Greek, I wonder who you are. And so there's all this kind of misinformation that's going on. And Paul says, let me tell you who I am. And then he identifies himself as a Jew uh, from Tarsus and Cilicia. And he says, uh, you know, he's actually proud of his city. It's like, you, you've probably heard of the city. It's a big time <laughs> city. So that's, you know, he's just dealing with with false information and misunderstanding. So he first tries to set the record straight with the Tribune, but then right. he goes on uh, to address the crowd. He wants permission mm -hmm. to address the crowd and raises his hand. And then in chapter 22, we get his address mm -hmm. to the crowd. Mm -hmm. What do you think was Paul's goal in addressing a mob like this? And what was the reaction of the crowd to Paul's use of language? Yeah, fundamentally, Paul's desire always is to win people to faith in Christ. And so he wants to share the gospel. He wants to use his own conversion as a paradigm example of how Jews who are zealous for the law, and he's going to connect with them on that point, I'm zealous like you are. I was zealous for the law as you are now. And I was converted, and he would say, I hope that you would be also. So his goal is evangelistic. Um, he wants to share the gospel. He doesn't mind what will happen to him if only somehow God might use him to win his fellow Jews. Also from Romans 9, we get a sense of the passion Paul had. He was willing to trade his own salvation 
for the salvation of the Jewish nation. And he certainly was willing to trade his own life here that some of the unconverted elect among the Jews might themselves be saved. So that's his desire. He wants to speak to them. He wants to speak to his countrymen. And that's why he he speaks to them in Aramaic or perhaps Hebrew. Um, They are listening to him in their mother tongue, in their heart language, not in Greek or Latin. You've mentioned it a little already, but why do you think Paul makes so much of his Jewish heritage? And how does Paul's stunning change of life from Christianity's number one persecutor to Christianity's number one proponent give evidence of the truth of the gospel? Right. So fundamentally, he this is his story. This is his testimony. He is a Jew, a Jewish man. He says it multiple times. He says it here. Uh, I am a Jew. Um, He said it a moment ago to the tribune, I am a Jew. He says it in Romans uh, chapter 10, I am a Jew myself. You know, God is not dispensed with his people. I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus. So also Jesus himself said salvation is from the Jews. There is a Jewish centrism to the gospel. It's a Jewish story. There's a cultivated olive tree, the image in Romans 11, of a working that God had been doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants and Moses and all of that through the law and the prophets that culminates in Jesus. He is the flourishing of the Jewish nation. He's the quintessential Jewish man, Jesus is, and the Savior comes from him. So he very much wants to speak directly to them because one would think of all the people on earth, they would be the closest to crossing over from death to life. But we find, Mm. sadly, because of that veil on their hearts, they are often the farthest away. But he wants to do what he always does, which is begin with the Jew, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and use his own testimony. Now, you asked about his testimony. And Paul says this uh, very plainly in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, but God used me as a paradigm example so that if God can convert a sinner like me, mm. he really can convert anyone. That's the logic he's using in 1 Timothy 1. So look at me, look at what God did in my life. He can do the same in your life. Now, verses 6 through 11 are the second account that you mentioned in the beginning in our introduction uh, of Paul's conversion. We get this second account here uh, that has some differences from the other accounts. Uh, How do we account for the differences from account to account, and how does Paul's testimony magnify the gospel and bring glory to Jesus? Okay, first on the differences, a more significant question comes, similar question, but more significant, with the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially the synoptics, which literally means to see things from the same angle or the same perspective, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes cover the same events in slightly different ways with slightly different language, and it does raise questions. It's sometimes called the synoptic problem, and what we tend to do with the synoptics, we would also do with the three accounts of Paul's conversion. We try to harmonize them as best we can. We try to believe every word of all three accounts is absolutely true. Wherein we have trouble fitting them together, that's actually pretty exciting because we believe that the Holy Spirit has ordained that verbiage and that we just don't understand properly how those things would fit together. But but hardly ever are there flagrant contradictions that cannot be harmonized. Mm. So it's when there are things that kind of bump into each other or jostle each other a bit, uh, it causes us to, uh, to think and to meditate and to try to align them. Now, when there's information given, a statement made in one of the accounts that's not made in the others, we just add it to the list. We don't deny that it's true. Anything that is said in any of the accounts is perfectly true. The doctrine of inerrancy, the inspiration authority of scripture teaches us that. So we just add it to 
to the list. And we just say that the other two accounts just omitted it. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's very plain that there are no comprehensive accounts that give 100% of all the information that could have ever happened in that situation. No way. Mm. It's a verbal summary and a recounting of some things that happened so that the Apostle John said plainly, I didn't write everything down. Frankly, if I tried to write everything down, the world couldn't contain the books that would be written. So it should not surprise us if some of these accounts of Saul's conversion have some additional features that the others don't. You just harmonize it into a synthesized or synthetic account uh, made up of Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. The three of them together is the perfect and sufficient account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Why do you think Paul gives the description of Ananias that he does in this account? And how does Ananias's and Jesus's encounter with Paul help explain Paul's subsequent course of action? All right, so Ananias is a godly man. He was a devout observer of the law, um, he says, highly respected by all the Jews living there. So again, these are Jewish credentials. This is the Jewish credential language. Uh, he uses the same thing for himself. I am a Jew, a circumcised on the eighth day, the people of, of uh, Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealous keeper of the law, et cetera. Those are his credentials. Now, this, these are Ananias' credentials, and he, a credentialed Jewish man who loved the law and was zealous for the law, just as all, this, all of you are, mm-hmm. so he's connecting with uh, his audience, came to see him and stood by him and was part of his own uh, baptism, his own uh, conversion. So it's more validation for the truth of the gospel. Paul's recounting of Ananias' commissioning words give us some insights that we don't get earlier in Acts 9. What are they and what's the significance of them for our discussion of this chapter? Right. So the insights have to do with the mission that God is going to be sending Paul on. And so Ananias is a prophet because God speaks to him to tell um, Saul, Paul, um, to tell him what his life is going to be like. And so the God of our fathers, meaning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's language that would have been very familiar to these Jewish, um, uh, this Jewish mob, uh, the God of our fathers has chosen you. You are chosen, an instrument. That's, again, prophetic language. It's like a, uh, a, the calling of a prophet. You were chosen for this role. God mm. chose you. That's like Jeremiah. Uh, before birth, God set me apart for this task. Uh, God has chosen you, and he says to know his will, um, which is just general term of he's got a work for you to do, and to know big picture. What is God doing in the world? And so Paul had the clearest understanding of the gospel of any man that's ever lived, uh, hence the book of Romans. So that he would, God, uh, that sorry, that Paul would know the will of God, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, also to see the righteous one, which he's already done, seeing the resurrected Christ in glory on the road to Damascus. You've been chosen for that. You've seen him with your own eyes, and to hear words directly from his mouth, which we've already seen uh, in the account, uh, both in Acts 9 and Acts 22. You've heard him speak. So you are chosen. This is prophetic. This is a prophetic role. You are a prophet of God, Um, and you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. That's your task. Your task is to go out and testify to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he calls on him to be baptized into Jesus' name. Andy, before we move on to the events that Paul describes in verses 17 through 21, what more should we take away from verse 16 as it relates to baptism? 
Yeah, so Ananias wants him to be baptized. Keep in mind that Paul was blind from the moment he saw the Lord uh, Jesus in glory on the road to Damascus until Ananias shows up. And he heals him by laying hands on him. But now he wants to confirm his faith in Christ. And we do that, that public testimony happens through water baptism. The word baptize means immerse. And so Paul was immersed in water by Ananias. And that fits the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything. Now, this idea of cleansing or washing sins away, we need to understand, as Peter said, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. Nothing happens when when um, water hits your skin. But the cleansing of, of, of sin, the, of the defilement of sin, happens through faith in the blood of Jesus. And what we believe is that the, the baptism of the Spirit, the immersion of the soul in the waters of the Spirit and the blood of Christ spiritually happens at the moment of justification, the moment of saving faith. We believe that's already happened for, for Paul. The outward water baptism is an outward visible symbol of that internal transformation that has already happened. So we should not imagine that until you get water baptized, you are still in your sins. But this is a confirmation that your sins have been washed away through faith in Christ. What does Paul go on then to describe in verses 17 through 21? And why do you think Paul shares all of these details with the riotous mob? Well, it's interesting. Uh, what he's saying is Jews aren't going to accept you. And it's, it's already going on. They wanted to kill him. And so to some degree, he's talking about the elephant in the room. The reason I'm even standing here in front of you, the reason I'm bleeding right now because you've beaten me, the reason that I have such a harsh response from so many Jews is that I was called on to testify to the to faith in the Lord Jesus, extending from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, including the Gentiles. And the fact of the matter is, your own people, the Lord is warning him, your own people are not going to accept you. And so it's, it, it's just explaining how it is that he is rejected. Now, it's the very thing that Stephen had covered in detail in Acts 7, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? And now you've killed Jesus. So you're doing the same thing. So what he's saying is, look, when I get done and you try to beat me up, understand what's going on. You are fitting into a pattern of sin that's generational mm. of your ancestors rejecting the prophets that God sends. And the worst of all was you rejected Jesus. And so if you start doing that to me, just that's a wake-up call. You should be aware that the Lord knew you would do this and warned me concerning it and that you are really uh, hostile to the working of the Holy Spirit through men like me. So I think that's why he does it. It's the elephant in the room is their hatred of him and their hostility toward him. Now, verse 22 begins by telling us that up to this point, they listened to him, which is good news for Paul. Yeah. But it seems like there's just one word that throws this mob into a frenzy. What is it, and what does this show us about their mentality at this point? Okay, the one word is Gentiles. That's mm. the word, all right? Or nations, et cetera, different translations, ethne. But this is Gentiles. It's the word we have. 
And so they're quiet and listening. Now, it's really interesting the things he said that they didn't have a problem with, or at least they didn't go crazy. Mm. Like I would have thought they would have gone nuts when he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. They're quiet. Listen to that. They just accepted that. He's saying that he's seen the risen Christ. They didn't say anything. I'm not saying they believed in him. I'm just saying they listened to him. Hmm. What was it that sent them off? It's almost like the, it was like a, a gas-filled basement, you know, filled with the fumes, and he th- lights a match and throws it in. They blow up. It's this word Gentiles. Now, here we need to understand the level of, of hatred, the level of hostility that the Jewish people feel toward their Gentile masters. Hmm. Uh, they are very, very angry about not having autonomy in the promised land, not having a son of David to sit on the throne. They are not accepting their subordinate position under their Gentile overlords, which position was mandated on them by Almighty God as a judgment Mm. concerning their wickedness and their sin, as clearly laid out again and again in the book of Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. You will be under the yoke of these Gentile kings. And it is clearly because you have lost the freedom to rule in the promised land. You will be in a subordinate position. And they can't accept it. They're very upset. Now, there's there's a lot of history here. There's been a lot of Gentile uh, domination. Uh, first the Babylonians, then you had the Medo-Persians, and then you have the Greeks. And in the Greek reign, they had Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a blasphemer and who violated the temple with pig's blood. And, and they have all these battles. And then in come the Romans. And they're the worst of all because they are just so unbeatable and so dominant. And there's just, there seems to be no hope. You've already got Masada at this point. Mm. And in some of the, the, the rebellion that happened during the Maccabean era, some of the fighting that went on in the Greek era, there's a lot of history of, of Jew, Jew-Gentile warfare. And the worst of all is coming in 70 AD um, with the Romans. And so they are filled with hatred toward the Romans. They hate the Romans. Not everybody's a zealot, but most normal Jews are patriots. Now consider the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. When when he went to his hometown and he uh, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah the prophet in Nazareth and he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and he sent me to bind up the, um, you know, the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captive and all the beautiful words from Isaiah 61, Mm. rolls up the scroll, sits down and gives the official teaching. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Fulfilled. They were stunned and they were amazed. It says that the gracious words that came from his mouth and they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? And they're amazed. And, And I think at that point, favorable, but quizzical, trying to wonder. But then he says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown the miracles we heard you did in other places. But don't you realize that there were lots of widows during the days of Elijah, and he wasn't sent to any of them but to a, a Gentile woman in mm-hmm. Zarephath? He, went, he was sent out to her. And, and there were lots of lepers in the days of Elisha, and none of them were cured, but only Naaman the Syrian. Oh, wait a minute now. God has a saving intention toward Gentiles. They went nuts and they grabbed Jesus and they wanted to push him off a cliff. Same thing. Hmm. So this hatred for the Gentiles is what is explosive here. He says, go, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened until they heard that word and that was it. They went nuts. 
And Luke paints the scene as if they've almost gone out of their mind, even right. to the point of flinging dust in the air, it says, and throwing off their cloaks. They're yeah. out of their minds with anger over this one word that Paul has spoken yeah. in this message that he's proclaiming. Yeah, and it's very sad because if you look at the very, very beginning, the 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 genesis, the origin of the of the Jewish nation, the call of Abram, he was said. It was said plainly, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And through you, all peoples, Gentiles, mm. on earth will be blessed. Oh, they lost sight of that. Mm. They, it's like they hadn't even read it. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, these people want all peoples on earth to be dominated by the seed of Abraham, not by not blessed by them. And wow. so it's pretty tragic. Yeah. What did the Roman commander do to Paul at that moment? What does the fact that he was about to flog Paul display about Roman justice? Well, you know, this is a Roman answer. I mean, they didn't have a lot. They didn't have a whole, a whole listing of things they did to people. You know, they incarcerated, they beat them, they killed them. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's, it's pretty simple. You're a troublemaker. We don't need you alive. We'll just deal with you. Mm -hmm. But first, we'd like some information. So it's just like the Inquisition or it's like some, some torture thing in a spy movie. We'll get the secret out of you. So they're stretching Paul out about to beat him. And Paul received eight significant beatings that he lists in Second Corinthians 11. Mm. Five times uh, he was uh, lashed with a 40 lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods. He says in, in Galatians, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So these, are, these, these um, floggings left scars, they left wounds. And it must have been a long time for them to heal. And so they're stretching Paul out, trying to find out the reason the crowd's going crazy. Now, again, I must feel that the Roman uh, tribune could not speak Aramaic or, or Hebrew. Um, I don't know for sure, but he didn't understand what's going on here. And so he's just trying to get information. The crowd's going crazy. We got to deal with this guy. Mm. And I think similar to, um, uh, to Pontius Pilate, the idea, why did he beat Jesus? He kept saying, I find no fault in him. But tell you what, I'll scourge him. Maybe that'll satisfy you. Mm -hmm. So it's this crazy mob. And if maybe I just beat this guy up, they'll they'll back off a little bit, mm -hmm. just not to be. But that's, I think, they're about to beat him. Um, and Paul speaks up. How does Paul's citizenship as a Roman help him in his mission? Why was the Tribune so alarmed in the end about what he'd done to Paul? Yeah. First of all, it's important to understand whenever I mean, not that we need to have this said, but this is part of the text, so I would just lay it out. Whenever you have an opportunity to avoid a beating for the name of Jesus, do so, all right? Don't say, hey, this is a great chance to store up treasure. You get the feeling Paul's like, I think I've already stored up I'm enough good. of this kind of treasure. Uh, this, <laughs> I'm good. I'll do some other things. Maybe if I don't <laughs> do get beaten, I, I can don't share get. the gospel with these people, and that can be where I store up my exactly. treasure. When you're, yeah, so you don't need to take a beating for Jesus. And so he uses his Romans, uh, Roman citizenship as a uh, as a trump card to get out of this beating. And it is, it's effective. Mm. The Tribune is actually very afraid that he's going to get in trouble. And so Paul plays that card very skillfully. He says, you know, before you beat me, can I say something? Sure, what's on your mind? Is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't even been condemned? I've not had a trial. So Paul knows Roman law. He says, this is unjust. And you're going to, Caesar's going to hear about this. You're going to get in trouble. And mm. then this guy brings this back to the Tribune, this news that Paul's a Roman citizen. In the end, Paul avoids the beating, 
But what does the commander do next with Paul? And why is this the outcome at the end of this chapter? Yeah, he avoids the beating by this Roman citizenship. By the way, there's some interesting information here about Roman citizenship. There are at least two ways to be a Roman citizen. One is you could be born a Roman citizen, and the other is you could buy your citizenship. It's like mm. a franchise or something like that. There and and it's pretty clear between these two. Paul um, represents uh, the genetic, uh, having been born a citizen, and um, this tribune had to buy his way into it. So it's mm. very, very interesting. And why would you spend a large sum being a citizen? Because it was valuable. So that's uh, a fundamental interesting feature here, uh, this conversation about Roman uh, citizenship. And so what ends up happening is because he plays that citizen card, um, that ends it. They, they pull out. They're like, all right, we're done. And the commander was worried, and they start treating people uh, – Paul, sorry, they start treating him very well. Uh, my guess is that he ate a good meal that evening. They don't set him free. Mm. And basically, Paul's in chains from, from you know, Acts 21 on. I mean, he's not, he's not again, he's not free again in the book of Acts. There, there's indications from New Testament scholars that Paul was set free and later arrested another time. But in any case, in the book of Acts, he's in, he's, he has no freedom from this point on. So he doesn't set him free, but he treats him well. So verse 30 is really setting us up for what's to follow in the coming chapter. What do we take away from this verse and what takes place leading up to Paul before the council? Yeah, there's a significant feeling I get in the last, basically third of the book of, of uh, Acts, or just from 21 on, is that Luke, the author, is arranging documents that will be needed for Paul's trial before Caesar in Rome. And so this is there's a lot of court stuff here and a lot of trials and questioning. And, and again and again and again, Paul's presented as innocent. He's not worthy of being condemned. He's not worthy. He's not a threat to Rome. And it's true, but it's also arranged that way. And so verse 30 kind of sets us up for the rest of that. Uh, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. He released him and ordered uh, the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So Paul has some measure of freedom, but he's got to, he's summoned back and they want to find out what's going on. And this is going to be a repeated theme. Um, Luke is serving the, the purpose of saying, you need to understand who Paul is and why the Jews want him dead. It's not because he did anything wrong, but it has to do with their convictions about him and their problems with Jesus and with the gospel. That's what's going on. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us on these verses we've looked at today? Well, let's go to the main idea. The main concept is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus is one of the most significant moments in all of human history. It is proof that God is sovereign in human salvation and can convert anyone anytime he chooses by the revelation of the glory of the resurrected Christ directly to the hearts of people. Now, it went directly to Paul's physical eyes and his physical ears, uh, and that was effective for converting him. But God has this kind of power. He can convert anyone. If he can convert Saul, breathing out murder and threats against the Lord's disciples, he can convert anyone. Beyond that, uh, we have uh, just the themes of Paul's calling to be apostle to the Gentiles and the commitment that God has to take the gospel from Jew only to Jew and Gentiles. That is the, the big movement in the book of Acts. We start with only Jews following Jesus. And by the end, uh, the gospel is in Rome and many Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. And so that's a theme here as well. Well, this has been episode 42 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 43, entitled 
Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.